0: Welcome back to another RaiderCast adventure into gaming history. Today, I'm joined by a fan legend in her own right. She's been the voice of Lara to countless fan projects, penned many pieces of fan fiction, and is the mind behind both the sublime Angel of Darkness novel and its superb audio drama rendition. I'm talking, of course, about the one and only Jennifer Millward. So, Jenny... Welcome to RaiderCast.
1: That's oh, very happy to be here, Chris. Really excited to be part of this podcast because I've heard the first episode and really enjoyed it and can't wait to
0: hear more. So Wonderful. Well, we are all the better for having you on. <laughs> In this episode, we're going to be talking a bit about yourself and how the series has inspired you. Then we can dive into some exciting Egyptian mythology, if that sounds good.
1: Oh, that's the exciting bit, you see. (laughs) (laughs) That's the bit I'm looking forward to the most, because this is one of my huge passions.
0: Tell us a little bit about your Raider journey. How did you first come across Lara and Tomb Raider?
1: My Tomb Raider journey actually starts back in 1999. We'd seen Tomb Raider here and there about on advertising. And to be perfectly honest, anybody who's known anything about being in the late 90s knows that Lara Croft was kind of anywhere and everywhere in every (laughs) capacity.
0: She was a big deal.
1: Oh, God. It was like everywhere you looked. She was on Lucas A bottles. She was on magazine covers. You couldn't go anywhere without her face looking back at you. But the interesting thing is that I was really put off by an awful lot of the advertising and the marketing for the game um i didn't own a playstation i've never owned a console so um i i was sort of missing out on the the gaming side of that and I was really turned off by the the whole over sexualization and the emphasis on, you know, this this huge busted bimbo bouncing around the the console, <laughs> you know, and was, and that was my, my my overriding impression for like the first few years after Tomb Raider came out. And then in nineteen ninety-nine we happened to have the telly on and an advertisement came on for Tomb Raider 4, The Last Revelation. And my mum just made this offhand remark about oh, that looks like fun. Uh, So my dad and I got that for the PC for a bit of a joke Christmas present because, of course, it came out late 1999. And we thought, well, you know, you've made a a, a note to this and it sounds like fun. So, yeah, we'll just do that. That's cool. Well, (laughs) yeah, the, the, the rest is really history because we loaded it onto the computer. And the first memory that I have is, of course, that incredible menu sequence Where it's doing this flyby through all of these. Oh, God, they they were like the the tombs, there's real world places, the inside of mosques, the inside of of tombs and pyramids and stuff. And of course, you had this gorgeous, cinematic, but really emotional, melancholic Egyptian style theme music playing in the background. And I was like, whoa um that's not what I was expecting okay <laughs> this
0: was supposed to be a joke yeah
1: <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> this was this was meant to be you know some kind of no offense to teenage boys but a teenage boy's wet dream that was not going to be of actual <laughs> interest it didn't it wouldn't be interesting it wouldn't be challenging it wouldn't be intellectual or anything like that and Lara Croft would just be pouting at the screen and making silly remarks the whole time well of course new game whoa hang on a minute Lara Croft's a lot younger than I thought she was. And, oh, okay, right, this is her very first outing, and she's got a mentor who is trying to be, you know, all superior and smug, and I know everything, and you just tag along with me and you'll learn. But instead of just being an empty-headed bimbo, this Lara Croft person has got brains, and she's got sass, and she's got interest in everything, and she gives back as good as she gets, as far as the banter is concerned. I was astonished at seeing this this completely different vision of this character and this game and as i played it i realized good god this is hard <laughs> this yes. is this is challenging you know I, I, it took me ages to get used to the controls on the camera as, as with everything once you get used to it you're fine but i remember like getting to the end of cambodia seeing von Croy get trapped in the iris room Gosh, I really saw him getting a comeuppance coming from a mile away. But you know, that was that was really well done. And then suddenly there's this gorgeous FMV in the desert, the camels, and suddenly, you know, that she's falling into this crazy
0: ass cavernous tomb. I can hear the music as you're narrating this. I can hear that.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and it, it it just blew me away. And I I just got completely and utterly hooked. More poor poor mom didn't get a word in Edwes. Oh no. <laughs> this was meant to be her present but you know I kind of Did she ever play it? Um no but she watched me play it for a little while and Oh that's lovely. Uh, <laughs> that's that's about as far as it went. Uh, Last revelation was was like should for me personally have really been called like the first revelation, the massive revelation. This <laughs> there was no trace of the the marketed empty-headed, teenager-pleasing bimbo anywhere in any of this. No, definitely not. So I was blown away by that. And the more I played it, the more I wanted to learn more about her adventures. So as soon as I finished Last Revelation, and that that took quite a while, even with, you know, I had to go and get the walkthrough at this, because this was like pre-forums,
0: yeah. pre- Oh, goodness me, it's such a big game.
1: But I, I loved it so much, and I, I just had to have more of this. I, I wanted to know more about the character. I needed to know more about her previous adventures and what was coming next. It's like a compulsion. And the idea that she finished the game locked in a pyramid, we don't know if she's alive or dead. It was like, you can't end it there. (laughs) You (laughs) cannot end it there. You know, come on. So I I immediately got inspired to wonder what had happened to her after that. And I went and I, because at at that point, of course, uh, no Steam, no downloading games or patches or anything like that. So I went to... My local video game store, and I got like the sold out versions of the of the first three games. How oh, wonderful! Yeah, i basically just played through them uh, straight off. The first one uh, really surprised me because, of course, by the last revelation, she's got all of these new moves and everything, and it was like, mm-hmm. "Whoa, this is actually a lot easier <laughs> than the one yeah, I was just come off the back of." But I was so taken by the story and the, the crazy locations and stuff. And back, of course, we were in Egypt, and it was so much fun. Tomb Raider 2, to this day, is the one I think, actually, I like the least for difficulty because I okay. got killed so many times. No. And I lost my way so many times. It was insanely hard compared to everything else. Even parts of The Last Revelation weren't this, weren't this challenging. And I think most of that was the combat. Then, of course, Adventures of Lara Croft comes along, and I just fell in love with the variety of stuff there. I loved being able to go from one location to another and hop all over the place. Again, the difficulty level was very difficult to compare with Last Revelation because technically the controls were a little bit more simplistic, but the difficulty of the backtracking and the platforming and the combat was super, super hard.
0: So I had great fun working all that. I found the yeah, I found the London levels next to impossible when I was a child. Goodness me, some of them were mind blowing in terms of level design, is so difficult.
1: Mm. And that was my one failure with this. The, the the levels that I liked the most in Tomb Raider Three, of course, were the more ancient ruins, naturalistic ones like India. Um, yes, Lon- yeah. London kind of put me off. I mean, I am not even going to mention a particular level's name. I think everybody can imagine it if I say scuba divers and crocodiles <sighs> and an awful lot of doors and underwater maze type things. That 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 level deserves to be its own curse word in the Tomb yep. Raider community. It totally and does. And everybody knows exactly which one I mean. But by this time, of course, uh, Chronicles had come out and... I, I was so, so freaking excited, I can't tell you, to get that. Uh, I didn't get it on the day of release, but I did get The Angel of Darkness on the day of release and that, I I can smell the interior of the D, the, the DVD-ROM case. <laughs> you know, that slightly, <laughs> that slightly plasticky smell or the kind of ink smell that you get with brand new books or magazines or anything like that. And seeing her in, in the denim and then the combats, I mean, to me, that is the Pinnacle of Lara, as she should be, and as she will. You know that that's where she reached peak Croft for me. Wonderful. I, I know. It, I know it had a whole bunch of of hugely negative reviews, and a lot of people just flat out didn't play it purely for that reason. And I'm really sad about that because it really deserved that attention. And of course, that further inspired me because, of course, it takes place uh, quite a significant chunk of time several months at least, after the end of Last Revelation. So when she turns up in von Kroen's apartment at the start and is like, you know, why am I here? Why are you bringing me here? And there was so much bitterness and conflict going on between the two of them. I loved that dynamic and I really wanted to know what was going on. And of course, because the game didn't provide an answer, I immediately just set about trying to figure one out. And by this point... I was lurking on forums, and lurking gradually became full membership, and full membership became a moderation, and just yes. loads of collaborative projects with people. It was so so good. It was a brilliant time to be a Tomb Raider fan. Was you could, this
0: around the time when you started to write Tomb Raider fanfic as well? As, yeah, as,
1: absolutely. Yeah, that's that was when it. you sort um, of
0: started to plan your Angel of Darkness novel.
1: Um, at first, I wasn't going to be anywhere near as ambitious as that. <laughs> Um, I, I was always loveding, loving to write and I've, I've wrote tons of stuff that I've never published because even now I can just look back and say, that is crap. But, <laughs> but I've always loved <laughs> to write. I've always loved to get into the heads of characters and to understand the structure of what actually makes a story tick. That's always been a passion of mine. So when that aching chasm of unexplained events in Tomb Raider came along, I had to fill it. It wasn't a, oh, that would be a nice idea. No, my, I, I was almost compulsively, I have to find out what happened to her. And I really enjoyed being in first person for Lara. She's a great character to be in first person to because she keeps so much of her thoughts to herself and never ever uh, displays those thoughts or those emotions to the outside world. It's like instantly set up, conflict between the internal and the external. So she's like so good for that particular style of writing. I'd written a few shorter fanfics in third person, but the first one that really got it going was a novella that explored what happened to her after she escaped the pyramid. And when I got to the end of it, she gets the phone call from Von Croy begging her, to come and help him. She doesn't say why, he doesn't say when or what, what the problem is, but, you know, he, he wheedles her into coming to Paris. So that, for me, was the, the very natural springboard into, I've got to novelise this. I can't just sit back and, and have that untold because, like the gap between Revelation and Angel of Darkness, Angel of Darkness was so unfinished as a product you know that there are so many people who have talked about this in huge amounts of depth about its bugs and its glitches and the fact that it was so unfinished that yeah. there was so much material that was left on the cutting room floor. I mean, I am so so grateful that one of the the biggest blessings that Tomb Raider has brought into my life is my friendship with Mertie Schofield, who is one of the most incredible human beings. On the planet, never mind a writer, never mind an animator. He's just a fantastic human being. And his vision.
0: That's lovely. Yeah,
1: you well, know, it's true. It's, you know, you, you speak to him, you read his writings, you listen to him in live streams and podcasts. He is a human dynamo of ideas and inspiration. And what he laid out, what his vision was for Angel of Darkness, was 10 times bigger than what we saw actually in the game. Which was a terrible, terrible thing.
0: Yeah, there was so much left out.
1: Oh, it was a travesty. In some ways, I think the fact that so many things were left out and so many plot points were not tied up, that was another reason to inspire me. I started collating all of the plot points that were missing and all of the other material that had been dropped that should have been in there all the time. Lara from the novella is kind of sat on my shoulder, like the proverbial, you know, conscience, <laughs> whispering, going, "Just do it, just write it." Just, I really need <laughs> you to tell my story here because, you know, just just listing it. Well, it was like, you know, all lots and lots of people, really dedicated fans, have spent years going through the beta files, going through the, the hidden files, like the the sound, the audio, the animations, and everything, and they've produced all of this incredible wealth of material. And a lot of people have put this lot together and collated it on forums, on on websites, and it's awesome. But for me, I had Lara herself wanting to tell it. She, you know, it, it's a very cliche thing to have somebody who rewrite it needed to be told as a story, not just as a, a sterile like shopping list. You show it, you unfold it, you you create a narrative that that grows and becomes this organic process that has a life of its own that's what really excites me about writing and Lara is the best companion to have as a guide for these stories so um and it it just grown from there I mean I I still have so many things I want to write but this is a, a testament to how much Tomb Raider continues to be an inspiration for me you know years now after I got into that it's what 21 years this year my personal Tomb Raider story started in 1999 and I really haven't looked back since Lara is just such an inspiring character and it's very personal to me as well because um, that was like less than a year since I had to drop out of school because of health problems pre then I was a gymnast I was running I was climbing I wasn't shooting dual pistols or fighting T-Rexes, but I was definitely... <laughs> Not for lack of trying. Oh God, you know, well, there's very few T-Rexes in my <laughs> <laughs> Sherwood Forest, trust me, I've looked. But, you know, I don't care how bad things get for me physically. I can still, like, project some of that, that love and fondness through Lara, you know. And there's actually a few times in the novel where I... I didn't sort of bash people over the head with it, but I kind of inserted a little bit of my own feelings of that. Like when she gets to the Tomb of Ancients, she's going to be rusty. She's maybe even going to be a little bit afraid that she's going to screw it up because she's out of practice, but help, just take a deep breath and do it. And when she gets to the bottom and, you know, she stumbles a bit, she's hot, she's sweaty, but she can look up and for that moment, there is that rush of joy to have like, yeah, this is who I'm supposed to be. This is what I'm supposed to be doing. Hey, I'm back. That was a really, really powerful personal moment for me to write. I hope that other people have also been inspired by Lara and know that, yeah, you can have your own inner doubts and your own inner fears, but it's what you do that matters. And she has all of these insecurities. She has all these doubts. But then the core part of her that, you know, no no pun intended, the core <laughs> part of her, that the, the yeah. start of who she is and who she will always be, is always there. You know, you can go through all the crap. Underneath that is a strength that can keep you going. Yeah, Lara isn't just a bit of fun for me, and she's not just a source of inspiration for writing, but her attitude and the way that she faces these challenges in the games has so, so deeply helped me over
0: the years this leads me quite nicely on to another question i wanted to ask you and there's so much infighting in the community between people who they prefer one developer mm-hmm. over another or they love mm-hmm. one game and they loathe others there have been these rifts in the fan base for so many years now and it just seems that as time goes on these rifts widen and new ones form so what do you think can be done to heal those divides
1: That's a really good question. I think every single large franchise suffers from this problem. We've seen it in everything from Star Wars to Star Trek. Any franchise that starts off gets a fan base, develops, they grow up, they have kids of their own, you know, and a new incarnation comes out, a new series comes out, a new vision. The same applies to Tomb Raider. And yeah, they all come under the same umbrella. But they are so distinctly different and so yeah. disconnected from each other that I don't think they can be reconciled by an outside force. I think the the best thing that could happen to the franchise is for the developers to kind of just keep acknowledging that all of those eras are totally 100% valid, especially... When it comes to the fandom and interactions with it, because Crystal Dynamics's um, community management has very much been focused on the new games. You know, each time one yeah, comes yeah. out or the build-up to one coming out, you know, obviously that's their job. They're supposed to be, you know, pushing this this new one. But the most of the fan base doesn't just subscribe because they want to see the latest
0: incarnation. They want to celebrate the series.
1: Yeah, they want to know that the developers are honouring the legacy of the franchise and those fans' contribution to it. So maybe one of the ways to get around this, it's not a catch-all solution by no means, but... Maybe just a more universal acknowledgement of the franchise. You know, Crystal Dynamics obviously is an American company. Square Enix is Japanese. Core Design was UK based. You know, this is a global franchise and always has been.
0: It's absolutely global, yeah.
1: It is literally going back to 1996 and all of that deserves attention. None of them are better than each other. They're just really, really different. The attitude shift, I think, is, is perhaps what would help if, if there was less um, competition between each incarnation and more recognizing what unifies them. That sort of thing might help a bit more.
0: That's a really, really great answer. Well, I have one more question for you before we dive mm. into Egypt. If you were in control of the series, where would you love to send Lara?
1: Oh, God. Um, that is a fantastic question, isn't it? Um, to be honest, I would love to see more of the Middle East and Mesopotamian places.
0: Yes, 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 yes. We've. Uh, oh, that would be so exciting.
1: Well, you see, this is where um, Angel of Darkness was going. The grand place was always going to be Cappadocia in Turkey and these underground cities and everything. But, you know, you delve a little bit into that and suddenly you get Zoroastrianism, the ancient cultures of Sumeria and Akkadia and Babylon, the epic of Gilgamesh.
0: There's some wonderful mythology involved in there.
1: Oh, it is magnificent. You know, these cultures are some of the most ancient on earth. And I think it would be criminal to neglect that. More South African places as well, you know, sort of going into like Ethiopia, the Sudan, that kind of area. That's for me would be incredibly ripe areas for for storytelling to mine. And I really hope to see Lara in, in those places at some point.
0: I think that has led us very nicely to our conversation about Egypt.
1: Ah, one of our favourite places. Absolutely. And it's way more than just pyramids and sand.
0: (laughs) So Egypt has appeared in three games so far. We've got Tomb Raider 1, Last Revelation and Anniversary. Today we're (laughs) going to try and focus on some of the mythos of the Last Revelation. Horus and Set and the amulet and where Lara fits into everything. So... Right at the start, Lara is hunting for the amulet of Horus, and she finds it, she carelessly swipes it, and when it's time for her to investigate the artifact itself, she discovers she's made a monumental mistake.
1: A bit of a boo-boo.
0: A little bit of a boo-boo, yeah. <laughs> we see the flashback of Horus imprisoning Set, and that's never really discussed properly in the game beyond, Set is evil. So there is quite a story to be told. Oh, God, yes. Who were these gods and what was their story in actual Egyptian mythology?
1: Probably best, actually, if we begin with why Set was such a cock in the first place. And I know you will get that (laughs) reference because we've read the same book. Um, guys, if you haven't read this particular book of ancient Egyptian mythology, I'm sure Chris is going to put the link down in the description because let me tell you, it's a very good retelling of the Osiris set Horus Isis myth. Go read it, I will please.
0: absolutely put a link in the description. <laughs>
1: um, but of course, before uh, 21st century cartoonists got hold of this, um, a lot of people were talking about this myth prior in history. There was a Greek Roman historian called Plutarch who famously traveled Egypt and basically gathered as much of the mythology as he possibly could and then wrote about it. When people talk about the, the myth of Osiris, Horus, Set and Isis, most of the time they are thinking of the version that we get inherited via Plutarch. And in his version of it, Set he is evil, but he is also very crafty and he's very intelligent.
0: It's an exciting, but actually incredibly dark story.
1: Oh yeah. Um, If you love murder, betrayal, blood and guts everywhere, and lots of sex and violence, this is a great myth. (laughs) Basically, Set is the brother of Osiris, and Osiris at the time is the king of the gods. He's the pharaoh. But of course, Set, who is Osiris's brother is kind of jealous of this fact, and he really doesn't like Osiris. Um, some accounts have Osiris, I think, accidentally, or maybe on purpose, kicking Set in the, in the leg at one point. I don't know what. But either way, <laughs> these two have got, you know, start out with the myth with an enmity. They, they don't like each other. Osiris is actually quite a, a decent character and stuff, but Set takes everything personally and he holds grudges. So one night he conspires with loads of accomplices to kill osiris and he gathers all the gods together in a great big party and celebration and he arrives with a massive jeweled box beautiful inlaid woods ebony ivory precious stones and he says to everybody okay this gorgeous box will be the prize to whoever fits in it now all the gods and goddesses are very eager about this because you know gold shiny thing gods need to say more especially bastet especially that time yeah (laughs) yeah why didn't he think about this a bit more carefully get out cat yeah (laughs) this is why it wasn't made of cardboard because otherwise you'd never have gotten her out of it (laughs) so he he gets everybody to try it but of course he has taken osiris's measurements secretly beforehand so nobody will fit in it except osiris who is the last one to try it and goes hey wonderful guy this is fantastic thank you brother i fit perfectly yeah well done you win Slams the lid down, locks Osiris in the box, gets his servants to solder it shut, and then proceeds to throw the box into the river. Nice move set. Now, most of the myths agree that this box then floats down the Nile until it comes to the Phoenician coast, and it gradually gets enveloped by the trunk of a growing tamarisk tree. Box disappears, nobody knows where Osiris is. Isis, she goes (laughs) nuts over Osiris's murder, and she sets out to find him. Set, meanwhile, takes takes over the throne. After quite a long, arduous journey with a lot of bits and pieces going off, Isis finds the tree, which by that point has been cut down, and the trunk of it has been made into a pillar, and she brings Osiris out of it. He's a little worse for wear, you could say. But Before anything can happen, before they can escape, Set turns up and in many versions of this myth, he then cuts Osiris into pieces, you know, as you do in a fit of rage. Yeah, Set scatters these pieces all over Egypt so that Osiris can never, ever be made whole again and become pharaoh again. Isis, again, does not just sit around moping as most historical, mythological women do. No, Isis is a badass. And she she basically slaps that across the nose, gets a bag and walks all over the land of Egypt, (laughs) finding the pieces of Osiris. And this is why so, so many places in Egypt claim to actually be the tomb or burial site of Osiris. Oh, they might have had a foot or an elbow or a shoulder or
0: you know uh, it was like the, the ancient relics. You go to churches and cathedrals around the world these days, and you get yeah. this is one of Jesus's fingers, and there's like that's it hundred and five. He had hundred and around. five fingers and five fingers.
1: Yeah. Well, th- this is the you know we we echo this part of the myth cycle in the temple of Osiris. Actually, that I quite like that
0: because of course in yes about collecting the pieces.
1: Yeah, you get the police the pieces of the statue and you put them back together and boom, Osiris is whole again. I'm very, very glad that the makers of the Temple of Osiris made it like a PG version because, of course, there is a piece missing in the Egyptian myth version that they most definitely would not want kids to be running along and collected. Oh, what's this next piece (laughs) of the body that is surrounded by a blue glow and sparkling and flashes into light when I touch it and is reunited with the statue? Yeah, you, you guys probably know which bit I mean. Either way, Isis manages to get all the other pieces of Osiris's body together, minus that bit which she gets a bit of help from her sister, Nephthys. And just because she is Set's wife does not make Nethys evil. She is not. She's a really awesome goddess. And of course, she is also sister to Isis. So she helps Isis reconstruct his body. They get Anubis on the on the case, the awesome jackal-headed god of embalming and the dead and he basically turns this dismembered body mess into the first mummy so hooray osiris you are the very first mummy and they say a whole bunch of spells over it toth uh, ibis-headed god of wisdom he comes along he helps with the whole magic thing and boom osiris is alive again sort of um (laughs) yeah there is a sort of there is a big caveat with that he cannot stay Basically, he, he has become, because he's been dead, because he's gone through all of this, um, he's gone through the, the judgment of Ma'at and he is now going to be the ruler of Duat, which is the ancient Egyptian underworld. And his job from now on is going to be to help judge all the departed souls that end up in the underworld, whether they go on to you know, his version of paradise or get fed to this giant crocodile hippo monster that we'll probably talk about in a while. But Osiris basically has, yeah, Amit. Oh, she's nasty. And we do run into her, sort of, in Last Revelation. But again, we'll, we'll get to that. But meanwhile, Isis is like, you know what? One night with my formerly dead husband is enough. And Isis becomes pregnant with Horus. So in most accounts of this, Isis basically goes into hiding from Set. So she finds a thicket of papyrus and she gives birth to baby Horus. And actually the, the papyrus thicket um, is a very, very powerful symbol in Egyptian mythology. When you, you look at tomb paintings or any kind of artwork, uh, most scenes in Egyptian art don't actually include a background, but when they do, mm. it's often a bed of papyrus reeds. And that's a very powerful symbol of like protection. And it feels like a safe haven, you know, a hidden refuge But the bit where we're really concerned as far as Tomb Raider goes is what comes afterwards, what was regarded as the contendings of Horus and Set. The contendings of Horus and Set basically detail Horus as a young man or young god trying to regain his rightful throne from Set. And this goes into a lot of detail. There's there's so much that happens. It's not a simple they meet in front of the pyramids, have a big battle, and then the winner gets to be the ruler. Now there is so much more going
0: on. There's some really nasty stuff. Yeah,
1: it's it gets pretty violent at, at some point. I mean, th- these competitions go crazy. You know, they're everything from okay, everybody turn into a hippopotamus and then eat the shit out of each other, <laughs> right through to a boat race. You know, <laughs> so. There is craziness in here. It's like, yeah, there's
0: slightly different contests happening.
1: <laughs> so, But the thing is that Horus repeatedly defeats Set in these and is supported by most of the other gods. But the trouble is that all of these contendings actually drag on for over 80 years in real wow. time. Mostly because Atom, the creator god, basically favors Set. He says, you know, you usurped Osiris. Technically, Horus is the nephew of Set, and so this kind of uncle usurps the throne and the, the nephew has to regain it is one of the oldest stories there is. I mean, we're talking about Horace and Set, but this is the story, same story that we get in Shakespeare's Hamlet, and even mm-hmm. like Disney's The Lion King. You know, this is a very, very old version.
0: Yeah, it repeats throughout time.
1: Yeah, this is a very, very old, old story. And it's very interesting that no real reference to it is made in the last revelation. It's, it's literally just Horus is good God and Set is bad God. And yep. bad God gets locked in sarcophagus with shiny amulet, which Lara accidentally releases and then has to re-imprison him. But I don't think there was any actual direct reference to this to this myth in the game. I
0: don't think there was anything that talked about the the relationship between the gods.
1: Going back to the the competition all sorts of craziness happens at one point Horus accidentally kills his own mother in a fit of rage you know he's he's battling set and Isis turns up and Horus you know turns around and accidentally on sort of enraged lops her head off as you do so yeah this battle gets very very heated and all sorts of, of other really even much more dark stuff happens including actually something that is relevant to the last revelation because in several versions of the myth set and horus actually inflict pretty bad injuries on one of the other two including set gouging out one of horus's eyes now this is really really important because horus is primarily a sky deity he is the goddess of the sun and of the heavens. And in many Egyptian symbols, the eyes are seen as things like the sun and the moon. So to destroy one of or more of his eyes is seen as basically a very bad thing as far as the heavens are concerned. In fact, some myths actually directly equate the destruction of the eye of Horus with the darkening of the moon. So during the monthly cycle of the moon, or during eclipses. You know, that they directly linked that symbology with the myth. Sometimes Horus gets the eye back when other gods, like, heal him. But either way, by the end of the myth, Horus is whole again, and Set is also whole again, and they do reconcile. And this is an important thing because one of the huge, huge cornerstones for the Egyptians was the concept of Mat, or Ma'at. And that is the principle of basically universal order of everything and everyone having a, a specific place in the universe, a specific role and the obeying of laws, the obeying of justice. It's basically like universal truth. Mm-hmm. Yes. And Horus, to, to, to be a good pharaoh, you have to uphold the principle of ma'at and Horus eventually becomes like a symbol that ma'at has restored.
0: I guess it's, again, symbolism as well that Set being a, a deity of chaos has been sort of smoothed over and chaos has turned into order.
1: Yeah, it's kind of, we don't end the myth in any version with Set or Horus killing the other or destroying the other. They both reconcile, and that's a really important thing to the Egyptians. And in some ways, the other thing that doesn't get mentioned in the game is the importance of Set's non-evil traits. Originally, Set was just basically this, this fairly benign or at least not malevolent deity of the desert and of foreigners and the storms and everything, and of fertility. You know, he was a very, very important deity. But over the course of Egyptian history, where they get invaded by people like the Hiskos, suddenly you get a shift where foreigners stop being seen as just on the fringes of civilization to a threat and suddenly set as part of that becomes ever more demonized in myth and in legend and you know you see that in in the way that the pharaohs view him i mean a lot of pharaohs who take a horus name as it's called when they when a pharaoh becomes pharaoh they are given what's called five names, you know, titles, if you like, one of which is known as the Horus name. And that kind of reflects their legitimacy to rule. But once or twice, you do get a couple of pharaohs who actually choose Set instead. Mm, Yeah. And very occasionally, after all of, in the later periods, you get Set and Horus appearing together in the cartouche that bears the pharaoh's name so that feeling of set wasn't always just pure evil and the presence of set and horus together was what was needed to confer the idea of ma'at and universal truth and balance so yeah everybody needs a bit of chaos in their lives i suppose is the the message there but yeah, Set's mythology in Egyptian culture and his animosity with Horus, the details of their, of their strife, just doesn't get any kind of real mention in the, in the game. And I'm, I'm really sad about that because I, I love this myth. It's way more detailed than what we've been able to discuss here today. Yeah. But it is so worth reading up on and reading and comparing the different versions of it. There's just so much more than we can, we can actually go into here except to say that the Amulet of Horus and the Armour of Horus don't actually exist.
0: No, unfortunately.
1: (laughs) There is no sarcophagus of Set that we know of. This is the thing, you know, for all we know, Set actually is in an undiscovered tomb somewhere. But the Valley of the Kings, where we actually supposedly do find it, has been pretty thoroughly explored. And so far, no gods, no rivers of blood, no apocalyptic curses. I'm going to hold off on on that last one now, now I'm thinking about it. But yeah, the actual amulet of Horus, the ankh shape with the beautiful red stone in the middle. No, that that was definitely made up for the game.
0: That was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so, so much, Jenny, for joining us and for elaborating on these ancient tales. Thank
1: you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure.
0: I would be honoured if you would come back and join us for a new episode, (laughs) hopefully later this year when I'm starting to plan series two, if everything goes well, then you would be most welcome to come back.
1: Oh, that would be fantastic. As you probably have gathered, I can rabbit on about this for an awful long time, (laughs) way longer than is healthy. But yeah, I would love (laughs) to come back and I'm really, really pleased that you've asked me to come on here. It's been a joy. Thank you.
0: Pleasure was all mine. Thank you so, so much. Thank you for joining us on this explorative journey into ancient Egyptian mythology. Follow along at Pod on Twitter, and don't forget to subscribe to the YouTube video series so you don't miss out on any future episodes. Until next time,